Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church Podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Good morning. Welcome to Jubilee Church. Uh, I'm excited to open up the scriptures with you because I believe that they are the word of God. And because they are the word, because it is the word of God, it, it means there's power and it means there's help. Now, anytime, just so you know, anytime that something has the power to change you, by definition, it will contradict you. Which means, on one hand, we can have full assurance that the word of God will help us. Every time we open up God's word, every time we hear God's word, we can have confidence it will help us. It just won't always affirm us. So if you came here looking for an affirmation for the blueprint of your life that you created, I don't want to disappoint you. I really, really don't want to disappoint you. But I might. But if you came looking for help, it is my privilege to introduce you the life-transforming power of God. He is our ever-present help in time of need. And when it comes to marriage, divorce, singleness, I think most of us would admit that we're out of our depth and could use a little help. So for the next two weeks in this passage that was just read to us, we will do uh, really one big sermon in two different parts on marriage, singleness, and divorce. If you have friends who are interested in this topic, you can send them the YouTube link, or better yet, invite them along next week. Uh, a friend of mine was, was telling me about when his now wife, they were going for premarital counseling, and the counselor said that the men are like dogs and women are like cats. Uh, to make a dog happy, you feed it, pet it, praise it. That's pretty simple. Feed it, pet it, praise it. My friend was like, well, how do you make a cat happy? And the guy was like, you know, who knows? And so, um, but, but whatever you did last time isn't going to work this time. So the stats on, on marriage are well-documented and equally depressing. We all know this. 50, you know, one in two, 50% in a divorce. Only a minority of children will make it to 18 living with both parents, which is, you know, one of the biggest disadvantages you can give a child. But the odd thing, is, here's the odd thing. The odd thing is, because we know this, the odd thing is that we as a society just accept it. What area of life that is important to you would you accept those kinds of statistics? If there was a 50-50 chance that the deposit you're getting ready to make in your local bank you might lose it, would you still deposit it? If there was a 50-50 chance that if you got in the car and drove, there'd be, you'd be in a serious accident, would you still drive? When the odds are 50% in any area of life that matters, you and I quickly change our behavior. So why do we keep taking a chance on marriage? Well, this has been a, a, a very long debated topic, and some will say, hey, we got to go back to the, the, to the very traditional view of marriage. That view produces a stronger family, a stronger society. Let's legislate it. Let's preserve the family. Some say a whole new approach, you know, full, you know, complete with prenuptial agreements, all kinds of divorce options, timeshare children, and even others say, why do we even need marriage in the first place? Let's just get rid of it. 
Well, marriage is unique in the fact that it's the only institution that man did not create. It was created by God. We were born with it. Uh, in the beginning, in creation, we have marriage. So marriage has been a part of mankind from day one because God created it. Uh, it's marriages in every society. And that's important to understand because if man created it, you can tinker with it, you can change it, you can even get rid of it. And marriage is one of God's greatest gifts. It has the potential for a lot of good, but it also has the potential for a lot of harm if you do not submit to the design of the maker. It's a lot like fire. Fire, you know, it can provide light, it can provide warmth, it can cook food, but it also can destroy if you don't submit to how it works. It's like a gun. You know, a gun is meant to point that away, but if you point it this away, you're going to end up shooting a hole in yourself. When it comes to marriage, divorce, and singleness, a lot of people shoot a hole in themselves. So we're going to talk about it for the next two weeks as Jesus has addressed it. So what is marriage? What is the essence of marriage? What is the core of marriage? That's what, you know, the essence of something is the core of it. Um, If I were to ask you, what is the essence of a physician? And you were to say, well, they wear a white coat. Well, that's true. You know, a lot of physicians wear a white coat but not all physicians wear a white coat. In fact, and there are other people who wear white coats that aren't physicians. So that's true, but it doesn't really get to the essence of it. Some people say that the essence of marriage is chemistry, passion, it's affection. But dogs are affectionate. In fact, I would argue that our dog, Ollie, is the most affectionate being in our household. (laughs) And yes, he is a part of our household. Nobody is more excited to see me than Ollie. Dogs have affection, they don't have marriage. Procreation, making babies, family, that's the essence of marriage. Rats and rabbits procreate. Too much, if you ask me. But there's no marriage. So what's the essence? Well, verse 5, he says, he's quoting Genesis 2. He says, um, to leave, for this reason, to leave and to cleave to his wife. This word cleave literally means to make a covenant, to make a promise. Marriage, in the technical sense, is a public vow, not of present love, but future love. And if you don't have this promise of future love, you don't have a marriage. This is what God does with us, by the way. Ezekiel 16, when I passed you by again, I saw, saw you, behold, you were at the age of love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you. That's another sermon. I made my vow to you and entered a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. Or other translations say that you became my wife. Something that's getting more and more popular at, at, at weddings is couple, couples uh, citing their own vows, which makes me nervous. Um, I mean, it's sweet, it's great, it's lovely, but a lot of times the vows that they write exhibit that they don't really understand marriage because it, what they write sounds more like a Valentine, Valentine's Day card. Yeah, a bad one at that. I love you. You're awesome. You know, from the moment I saw you, you smell like rainbows and sunshine. But a marriage covenant says nothing about the present. To cleave to someone is to make a promise, and a promise is about what you will do in the future. 
A wedding isn't a celebration of present love. A wedding is a public promise of future love. And we don't get that. Anybody here be you know, the best man or the maid of honor in a wedding? Raise your hand. I know you're cold. You want to? Okay. So I don't know if you knew this or not. But you, you were witnesses. You, know, I don't, you probably don't even remember signing that. I mean, I, I tried to chase you down to get it because I wanted to leave. But the, um, you, you signed something. And what you signed, you didn't sign like, oh, yeah, they're in love. You signed they will love. You, you said, I am a witness of this promise of their future love. Not of the feelings that you feel today, but the love you'll express tomorrow in every other day until death do us part. I covenant, I promise to be tender, to be faithful, to be kind, to be compassionate and affection and patient from this point on to the future, not based upon your performance, husband, wife, but based upon my promise. To say I love you is not a covenant. To say I will love you is. And that is the essence of marriage. If marriage was based upon procreation or affection, it wouldn't be a covenant relationship. It would be a consumer relationship. Consumer relationships are fine. We have them all the time. But in a consumer relationship, like you would have with a grocery store or anywhere else, um, you're always reviewing performance. A consumer relationship is fueled by performance regardless of the promise. You'll make a, they'll make a promise to deliver goods and services to your liking, but you'll see and you'll review that performance and see if they match up to what they said. That's a consumer relationship. A consumer relationship is fueled by performance regardless of the promise. A covenantal relationship is fueled by a promise regardless of the performance. So I've been going to the same tire place for the past eight years. And they're good guys. They do a good job. And we have, you know, a bunch of old cars. So they, all our cars are old. So they, they we're there all the time. And so... Uh, but you know what? In the past few years, they've done something that, were, that was annoying. In fact, I would say they've done a few things that have broken trust. Now, I wasn't looking for it, but I just saw this billboard that said, you talk, we listen. I was like, that's interesting. And so I, was, I, went, I wasn't going to do anything serious. I just, just an oil change. And I go get the oil change, and everything was great. Uh, and, and in fact, they even complimented me on my wheel alignment. And... Uh, you know, the other place never complimented me on my wheel alignment. In fact, they've never complimented me on anything. I can't remember the last time they said anything nice to me. And so I took my old place out to a restaurant that was low lit, and I said, hey, it's not you, it's me. And so we broke it off. And, but that's a consumer relationship. That's what you do in a consumer relationship. When you need better tires or cheaper groceries or whatever it is that you're looking for. What is a covenant? Covenant is a promise. What is a marriage? A marriage is a covenant. And in that sense, it controls your future. The only way to not be controlled by your past is forgiveness. 
You don't like how your past is, is controlling you? Remember a few months ago? Have the funeral, forgive the person, don't be controlled by your past. The only way to not be controlled by your future is a promise. And do you know the confidence that we have in our salvation, by, uh, by the way, is hinges upon a promise that God has made? Your confidence is dependent upon your uh, thoughts on God's ability to keep that promise. This whole thing hinges on a promise that God has made to us. And the love that God has for us is not based upon our performance. It's based upon his promise. In fact, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Greater love has no man than a man who lays down his life for his friends. While we were still sinners, God expressed to us the deepest and best love imaginable. If you take on as your mantra in your marriage that it's not, the health of my marriage is not dependent upon him. It's not dependent upon her. It's dependent upon and fueled by this promise that I made. This love that God has for me, while we weren't performing, he loved us. That my focus is not gonna be on his performance. My focus is not gonna be on her performance. My focus is gonna be on God's promise to me and how he has treated me. And that love, my brothers and sisters, is not without effect. And if you take this dynamic into your marriage, you'll never win an argument. <laughs> you'll never win an argument because there's no argument to make. By the way, what we're trying to do here at Jubilee Church is, is that we, are, we have a, what we call a covenant community, covenant membership. Because God said some radical, I mean, just radical, radical stuff. Sometimes it just goes over our head. We don't even really think about it. It's just nice sentimental thoughts. He says, he says, love one another the way that I have loved you. How has God loved you? God loves you apart from your performance. God loves you based upon his promise. So how do we love each other? We don't love each other based upon one another's performance. We love each other based upon the promise that God has made us to never leave us or forsake us. This is, so God, the essence of, of marriage is covenant, a promise. The purpose for marriage is friendship. And there are a lot of purposes for, for, for marriage, but the immediate cause that Jesus points to in Genesis 2 as the reason God created marriage is the need for companionship. So in verse 5, he says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. What's the reason he's talking about? Well, in verse 4, he said, from the beginning, God created the male and female. So in Genesis 2.18, we get the first malediction of the Bible. Um, at the end of every service, or most services, I'm assuming it'll happen today, there's a benediction. 
The word benediction means the good word. Uh, uh, malediction means the bad word. This is the first bad word that we got. It, it, up until that point, it's been all benediction. Stars and moon, good. Seas and land, good. Animals, good. Man, good. Man, not al- man alone, not good. Malediction. That's interesting because that statement was made before sin entered the world. That means the ache of loneliness that we feel, this ache for, for human companionship, is not a result of sin. I don't know what your quiet times are like. I hope that they're good. They're prob- they probably don't compare to Adam's quiet times. 24-7 communion, walking manifestly with Jesus, with God, yeah. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's a pretty good quiet time. And yet something wasn't right. Still needed. So I always laugh when people say, I don't really need to be a part of a communion group. That's interesting. You need it. We need this. And the the reason why is because God created us in his image. God exists eternally as Trinity in community with his equals, yet different. They're equal but different. So God created Adam, a companion, equal but different. And the word that God used to describe her, Ezer Kenego, which means alike but different. Someone like him, human, not an animal, like him, but different, female, not male. This alike but different was so wonderful to him that he broke out in song. He broke out in poetry. At last, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You know, love her. I am her. We're we're one. We're equal. We're together. And it was a oneness beyond their physical nakedness. It was a personal nakedness. And and that's in marriage, you make yourself absolutely vulnerable. No secrets all the way to the bottom. And in that place of intense vulnerability you're loved and you're delighted in and you're rejoiced over, you're sung over, fully accepted. And this is a zone of safety that our hearts need and want. And it's fueled and safeguarded, not by passion, but by a promise. Several times in the Old Testament, the marriage partner is called the Hebrew word halap, which means deep friend deep friend. And if friendship is the purpose of marriage, this has massive implications for dating. If marriage is about friendship, friendship ought to be the basis of dating. Um, And I'm not belittling physical attraction. It's really important. But if you walk into a room and you immediately eliminate seven out of 10 people based upon how they look, you could be eliminating some of your best prospects for marriage. Culture will tell you that romance and sexual attraction is the leading indicator. The Bible says it's friendship. You should be looking for someone who could be your equal, someone who could be your friend, someone you could share your deepest commitments to. That's why, you know, you know, church has been saying this for years, but that's why if you're a Christian, you should never marry someone who's not a Christian. That's not just some arbitrary, you know, rule that, you know, all the single people hate. It's a living principle because for marriage to work, you have to open up and share the deepest part of you. You have to completely open up. You got to go all the way to the bottom, which is impossible if the center of your life is different. You may have lots of affection for that person. You may may love and care for them very, very deeply, but you'll never experience deep friendship that is meant to be had in marriage. 
If you are committed to Jesus and your partner is not, when you open all of this up to them, they are not going to understand and you are going to feel violated. Marriage is not you do your thing and I'll do mine. That is a consumer relationship where you negotiate the terms. I'll concede here if you concede over here. That's not what a marriage is about. It's a covenant friendship that is so deep that you become one, which of course is impossible to do if the center of your life are different. You become one in every sense of the word. It's like, you know, you're, it's like doing life together. You're rowing a boat. And if you're rowing one way and they're rowing the other way, at best you're standing still, but you're probably spinning around getting dizzy and sick. You're meant to not just be in the same boat together. You're meant to like go somewhere together. And it's impossible if you're not you know, connected on the most important thing of your life. I'll touch on this next week even more, but friendship being God's purpose for marriage is also gonna have great, massive implications for being single because Jesus is going to point to a union stronger than marriage. Marriage is just the, the pointer, a family even more significant than biological families. The, the nuclear family is... The, the center of a flourishing human community. It's just not the center of kingdom community. It's not the center of the kingdom of God. Marriage is not the center. It's in, it is the center of a flourishing human society, but it's not the ultimate in the kingdom. We'll talk more about that next week. The past, so the, the essence of marriage is promise, covenant. Uh, the purpose is friendship. The pattern is the gospel. This may be the biggest idea of all in Jesus only alludes to it. Jesus here in Matthew 19 is, is quoting Genesis 2. Paul later, uh, he's an early church guy that, that very important in the New Testament. Uh, he wrote in Ephesians 5, and he's quoting Genesis 2 as well. So they're both quoting Genesis 2, and, and they, they say a lot of the same things, but they say some different, uh, some different things that all point to the same idea. Paul says that in the first marriage, God was giving a picture of his love for people. This is the big idea that a God-designed marriage and everything that goes with it is just a taste of his love. And not only is this going to give you a pattern for how you love your spouse, ironically, it will show you how you can be happy and fulfilled in a season when you're not married, even if you want to be. Or how you can be content in a marriage that you don't want to be in. In other words, how can you be happy in an unhappy marriage? How can I be happy when I want to be married and I'm not married? C.S. Lewis, who didn't get married until he was in his mid-50s, compared the blessing of marriage to a ray of sunshine. So when you walk out in the morning and you know, a ray of sunshine hits, your, you know, hits you in the face and you follow back that ray of sunshine from which it emanates the sun, the sun is the source, the ray is the manifestation of the sun. And marriage is like a ray of sunshine of God's beauty and love. And if something in life obscures you from that ray of sunshine, a tall building or a cloud, you are not disconnected from the source only the manifestation. Rachel, my wife, represents something that can never be taken away from me. But even though there are circumstances where Rachel could be taken from me, and I don't want to talk about that because it makes me sad, but while death may do us part, nothing can separate me from the source of her love. There are circumstances of life 
where the ray of sunshine can be obscured. And in those seasons of where the clouds of life obscure that ray, either through disappointment or bereavement, the ray may be gone, the ray may be gone, but the sun remains. Every perfect gift comes from God. Work, provision, health, friendship, marriage. But when the gift is taken away, the giver remains. God is the source of love. Marriage is one of the manifestations of that source. But don't get fixed at the ray of the, the, ray of the sunshine at the expense of the sun itself. The essence of marriage is a promise. The purpose of marriage is deep friendship that leads to oneness. The pattern of marriage is the gospel that points to something much, much bigger. So let's see how Jesus uses those concepts to answer the divorce question. Verse six, so they are no longer two but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. No periods, no commas, no fine print, no recommended reading, period, end of sentence. If marriage is a covenant instituted by God to demonstrate his love, two souls becoming one, he's saying that divorce should never be an option. Now, if you've never related to the Pharisees before, you might be relating to them right now because you may be thinking that can't possibly be true. I don't want that to be true. That can't be true. So, and they thought the same thing. In fact, the disciples are going to say something even more extreme in a minute. Verse seven, they said to him, why then did Moses command, they use that word wrong, one, to give a certificate of divorce and send her away. And they're referring to Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if he finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he writes a certificate of divorce. Jesus said to, him in verse, to them in verse eight, because of the hardness of your heart. What's that? It's not, it's not a good thing. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. In that day, there was, the rabbis taught a distinction between a command in the law and a concession from the law. A command expressed God's heart. It revealed God's desires, his plans from the beginning. A command communicated God's heart. A concession was something that God allowed in a fallen uh, society, a people, in order to keep peace within that society filled with people at various levels of spiritual maturity. In other words, Jesus is saying there is an allowance for divorce. There is a concession due to our fallen state, something you, uh, something you could do, but not something that you necessarily should do. And so what Jesus is going, we can get into the, the details of some of this stuff, but basically what he's saying He's saying divorce can happen. In fact, in verse nine, he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. So he says there's an exception. But then he says it actually even stronger. He says marries another commits adultery. So Jesus is saying here that you, that, uh, you should not get divorced. In fact, if you, marry some, if, you, if you get divorced and marry someone else, he considers 
uh, in adultery against the first spouse because in his eyes, the covenant is still intact. But he says there is an exception, which is sexual immorality. And following the same logic, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 7 that if you are deserted, like if someone leaves you, um, which if you continue to follow that logic, it would also include a dangerous abusive situation. And if you are in a dangerous abusive situation, I think you should get out. I think you should call the police. But, he, but the, the, the teaching of the Bible between Jesus and Paul is that the covenant, is until, the covenant stays intact until death can kill the covenant, until death do its part. Death can kill the covenant. So it can either happen through um, adultery, abandonment, or abuse. The point is, what Jesus is saying is that divorce should be as radical as amputating an arm or a leg. Meaning it can't, so an amputation is a life-saving procedure. The reason why you would amputate your leg or your arm is to save the rest of you. And um, things like adultery can be so powerful and destructive that some people can't survive it. Now, some can, and some have, and some do, but some people can't come back from that. And so he's saying that, that the, so you would do an amputation to save the life, and sometimes that's necessary. But it should be like a last resort. If you went into your doctor, and you're like, man, my ankle's, I sprained my ankle. Just cut it off, just amputate it. Got a hangnail, cut it off. I don't like this freckle, cut it off. You, it's, I think it's fair to say that it's overprescribed. It should be, you'd want a second opinion, a third, of, is there anything else we can do? Because I really like my arm, I want to keep my leg, I don't, I don't want that. It has serious consequences. So it can happen, and maybe it's necessary to save a life, but it should be thought about. If you're considering a divorce, this sermon, although I hope helpful, should not be the only thing in there. You should not be like, okay, give me the information, and then I'll go make my life decisions. Bad plan. You are never designed to live that way. You are designed to be in community where you're sharing your, your decisions and your life together. And it's so sad to me and tragic how people slowly and quietly and secretly head toward divorce without letting other people know what's going on. Other people who can help you and, find, and, and give you good counsel. You don't have to go this alone. Well, maybe you're thinking like, man, I've, but I've already done it. <laughs> In fact, you know, uh, I'm the reason. I was the party at fault. And you're making me feel really bad right now. Is that, did I do the unforgivable sin? The short answer is no, you didn't. King David in the Bible, for example, um, started his relationship with Bathsheba in the worst possible way. He falls in love, he has an affair, and then he kills her husband. Um, that's an unbiblical divorce. <laughs> I, I don't know what your circumstances were, but I'd be willing to bet it wasn't that. But when he confessed and repented, I want to underline that word, confessed and repented. 
If you're looking for God to affirm what you did, you're not going to find it. He will do something much better than affirm you. He will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you confess that what you did was wrong and open yourself to the possibility of restoring everything that you can. If you have that heart, he will forgive you. And that's what he did with David. God cleansed, you can read about Psalm 51. God cleansed and blessed this new marriage to Bathsheba to the point that from this marriage came Solomon and from Solomon came Jesus. Unbelievable. What that means is, and what God is trying to say to us is I can read, I can redeem the worst situations. I can redeem the worst situations because our lives are not dependent upon our performance. Do you know that? Your life is not dependent upon your performance. Your life is dependent upon his. Trust that. Confess that. Build your life around that. So the disciple will end with this. The band can, can come up. The disciple said to him, if such is the case, if a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Look, if this has to be like together forever and I have to live through disappointment and difficulty, it's just better not even to get married in the first place. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those to whom it was given. You know what that means? It means that marriage is a calling. And next week we'll learn that that being single is a calling. It's something that you're called to, not something that you decided for your happiness. It's something you are called to. And the way that you live out something you're called to is by depending upon the grace of God. You know how your marriage is gonna thrive? It's not dependent upon how good she looks or how kind he is. It's dependent upon the grace of God. Have you ever put the grace of God at the center of your relationships? Have you ever put the grace of God at the center of your marriage? Have you ever put the grace of God at the center of your singleness? Have you ever put the grace of God at the center of your life? To, to do that. I mean, what, what would happen if you did that? What would happen instead of focusing? So God, so I'm going to, I'm going to love my wife the way Christ has loved me. That means I'm I'm never going to win an argument if I do that. <laughs> Be terrible. But it'll actually transform my marriage. It will, it has. To depend upon the grace of God. Depend upon the grace of God. I'm going to I'm going to treat you not the I'm not going to treat you based upon the way you perform. I'm not going to treat you based upon the way you're treating me. I'm going to treat you based upon the way God has treated me. I'm going to treat you based upon his promise. And I'm going to I'm going to take that promise and I'm going to make that promise to you and this relationship's going to be fueled by that. Just try it. When we stand. I want to I don't know how, isn't it funny how it all always ends up coming back to God?
He must be the sinner or something. Um, this is all about him. It's all about his power. It's how life's meant to be lived. Paul said that, didn't he? He says, it's no longer I who live, it's Christ that lives in me. Trust in his grace. Receive his grace. Receive his grace. Don't be controlled by your past, forgive. Don't be controlled by your future, make a promise. And allow that promise not to be fueled by their performance or yours. Allow it to be fueled by the promise that God has made to you. Rely on his grace. God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you make it abundantly available. And I thank you that anyone here who wants your grace can receive it. The Bible says that God opposes the proud. If you were proud, if you wanna, I can do this, I can make this happen. He, he opposes that person, but he gives grace to the humble. Anyone who would ask, he would pour out his grace. Anyone who would confess that he's right and I'm wrong. Anyone who would confess that he is true and I am false. Anyone who confess that he is perfect and I fall short. Anyone who would confess that. Grace, power, love. God, may it flood in our lives and in this church. Amen. Mm-hmm.